they'll be willing to pay for it, but they're not just gonna blindly send you 1% and hope that it works out. They're gonna wanna see more evidence that you're helping them. You're listening to Your Financial Planner Now What, the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome back for episode 127 with Larry Miles. Larry is a principal at Advice Period, and he believes in order to build a stronger business, you have to be open to change. Unfortunately, many advisors find themselves feeling stuck in the antiquated practices of the firm they contribute to. Today's guest wants to help change that and grow advisors into financial planning professionals and business owners. Straight ahead, Larry and Hannah explore how to adopt new planning practices for your firm and where you can connect with like-minded advisors who all want to grow and make the financial planning profession the best it can be. Well, thanks for joining us today, Larry. Hannah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so I am so excited to have you on the podcast. And, you know, when I go to your website, the first thing that pops out to me is how the current model um, is totally outdated. And presumably this is, you know, the investment in, in device business. What do you mean by that? My partners and I have, have worked together for most of the last 20 years. And in building out advice period, we wanted to take a fresh look at the industry. We, we thought a lot had changed since we first got into the business from uh, the technology that was available to advisors to uh, what really mattered to clients to how we could charge our clients a fair fee for the services that we were offering. And so it was really with a blank sheet of paper. And so the things that we saw, the big themes were we feel like clients are best served with more planning, less investments, and better technology. And were there any specific conversations that you had with clients or any specific stories that really kind of gave you this aha moment that something needed to change? Our first business was very much investment consulting, open architecture, manager of managers. We could invest in any investment manager that our clients were interested in or that we thought made sense for them. Uh, and, And over the years, what we found was that despite we having this infinite universe of investment options, finding managers that could outperform a benchmark, net of fees, let alone net of taxes, was really difficult. Uh, At first, we thought it was just us. Maybe we just weren't very good. Um, But as we looked around and talked to our peers, we found that most folks were struggling to find investments that really outperformed. And at the same time, we were having success helping our families with planning financial planning for clients that were saving, estate planning for those who had taxable estates. And we quickly realized that those numbers were much more significant to our families, to our clients, than whether or not we could make them a few extra basis points uh, in the market or in their portfolios. And the numbers are just so much bigger if you can save in taxes, be it estate tax, income tax, et cetera, capital gains tax. and so that, that was, it wasn't one aha moment so much as a series of them over the years that really led us in this direction. And I think that coincided with the general uh, commoditization of investment management uh, and the, the advent of you know, the robo-advisors and the you know, massive flows of dollars towards index funds. And so that was what really got us thinking about, gosh, if, if you want to be a financial advisor over the next 10, 20, 30 years, you can't just do things the way that you've always done them. You can't just charge the 1%, gather as much assets as you can. Clients aren't going to go for that because it's just not valuable to them. They're going to really seek out results. They're going to demand something more. So financial advisors can either decide they're going to go out of business because they don't have a, a 
business anymore. They're going to have to dramatically reduce their fees, or they're going to have to add value in other ways. And, and that was the path that we chose, was we wanted to add value in other ways. One of my favorite sayings is you're either the disrupted or the disruptor. And it sounds like you are firmly wanting to be on the disruptor side of the side of the business. We definitely want to focus on what really matters to our clients. And, um, you know, we can learn a lot from the status quo. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I agree. You're, you're either getting ahead or you're falling behind. There really is no status quo. And I think that's that's the amazing opportunity that financial advisors have right now is that I think we're at, we're at a bit of an inflection point, whether it's the the um, convergence of technology, uh, planning, uh, shifting demographics in our client base, uh, those that are looking for something new and different. I don't think clients are going to just accept the old model. Uh, and so I think that's a huge opportunity for advisors who want to take advantage of it. And so what does this new model look like? I'll give you one example. Um, one of the, the more traditional aspects of our industry that we think is completely outdated is the focus on AUM. Um, for us, AUM is an irrelevant statistic, irrelevant in terms of being a horrible indicator of whether or not you're a good financial advisor. I know great financial advisors whose clients truly benefit from their advice who don't have big businesses. And at the other end of the spectrum, I know uh, advisors who have tremendous assets under management um, but focus, at least in our opinion, on all the wrong things, and I don't think their clients are well-served. So to us, AUM is a horrific indicator of whether or not a client is well-served, and I think our industry would be uh, greatly benefited from shifting away from that as the kind of de facto indicator of whether or not you're successful. Related to that, we think that charging based on assets under management is likewise a relic of the past, that you know, advisors whose business was just to, you know, gather as many assets as they possibly could, cram them under a 1% fee and go about their merry way and play golf half the day, four days a week. That, that, that business just shouldn't exist. And so eventually it won't exist. Uh, instead, advisors should charge a fair fee for the value that they're adding. Sure, there's some correlation between the value that you can add for a family and their assets. Uh, but ultimately, I don't think the correlation is one. I think it's far less than that. And I think the savviest advisors are figuring out a way to charge a fair fee for the value that they add. So do you just charge like a retainer fee, monthly subscription? Like what, what is the fee that you're charging your clients? So what we've done is we've, we, we've looked at the different ways we think we can add value to clients. Everything from the fairly low value added of asset allocation and investment selection to the higher value add for of financial planning or estate planning. And we've built a calculator that uh, we share with all of our clients and pull up in client meetings and say, look, here are the facts and figures of your situation. Here's your investments that we're going to manage. Here's your family's net worth that incorporates maybe a family business, maybe real estate. Here's the complexity. We're going to help you with financial planning or estate planning. And these are all options. And so based on what the client's looking for and how we can help them, we've calculated a fee. And you know, it's like a Monte Carlo. It gets you in the right neighborhood. It may not be exactly the right fee. It might be a little bit high. It might be a little bit low. But it allows us to have a conversation with clients where they're truly going to understand how we're going to help them. And it's not just, well, you know, we're their investment person, we manage their money, and I'm not really sure what I pay them or what I'm getting for it. 
we just think there's a huge opportunity for transparency. And then, yes, we bill quarterly in advance. So you could think of that as a bit of a retainer model. And it, to us, it's just better business. It's better for the client because it's more transparent. They understand what they're going to pay. And it's better for us. Look, when the market's down, the AUM-based advisor is taking a pay cut at exactly the time where they're going to be working their hardest to keep their clients focused and on course. And we just don't think that makes any sense. And so, you know, our advisors are really thankful that I think it's over over 80 or 90, maybe 85% of our revenue is fixed flat fee. Uh, it goes up each year with inflation, but, um, you know, it's just a better way to run a business. And I think that too is a theme that a lot of advisors miss out on and that you know, translates into inter- lack of enterprise values that you know, they're not building a business. How have clients responded from moving away from that AUM model to more of a retainer model? I know when I've talked to, you know, 1% is such a simple concept to grasp. Our experience has been that the advisors, and I think this is true s- systemically with anything new, that advisors are much more reluctant than their clients. Hmm. Advisors are the moving from an AUM based pricing model to a fixed fee model they're very pragmatic and and reluctant and they have a lot of questions and they're nervous clients who hear about it love it and so once the advisor gets a couple of those conversations under their belt and she sees that yes my my clients react well to this they appreciate the transparency then the advisors embrace it fully um, but it's like so many things that are new, you know, it can be a little bit scary. And I think that's where we can help a lot of, you know, that's where we help our advisors you know, get comfortable with things and say, well, this has been our experience moving away from a model based on assets under management to active management to something more passive and fixed fee. Um, you know, they can benefit from our experience because it's, it's something new. But clients, clients have really appreciated it. And I think that's a trend and whether we think of that as the you know, millennials coming of age and, and what they're looking for just as consumers, I think they're going to focus on value. They're not going to accept a system that just because it's been there and it's what their parents used. I don't think they're going to just pay a fee because it's always been paid. I think they're, they're going to look for value, demonstrable value, and they'll be willing to pay for it, but they're not just going to blindly send you 1% every month or every quarter, or every year, and hope that it works out. They're going to want to see more evidence that you're helping them. And so do you manage investments for clients? Yes, absolutely. It's one of the services that, that we provide. Uh, all, I'll say we offer it to all of our clients. We have about 800 families that we work with and about uh, 2,500 uh, lives that we impact. That's one of our uh, key measures of success is just how many lives we're impacting. And uh, investment services is something that we offer to all of them. A lot of our clients, most of our clients... Uh, we manage money, but for some clients, their net worth is uh, the vast majority of their net worth is tied up in illiquid assets. And so we'll advise them on how to structure it. We'll help them uh, get the right estate planning and tax advice. Um, but we're, we're the overall quarterback. And then do you have like a minimum fee? Like what, or what, I guess maybe a better way of asking this is what do your clients look like? Do you have a specific demographic or what's the minimum fee for somebody to work with you? You know, something that we wanted to try when we started uh, Advice Period was not having a minimum fee. We, um, we, we had always felt, ourselves included, that most businesses, most financial advisory businesses have minimums 
based more on their own business metrics and the kind of the, the smallest client where they can be profitable. Uh, not, and they'll couch it as, well, we really focus on clients between X and Y or over, but we just think that's all a bunch of you know, marketing and, and PR. Um, so we wanted to start with, there's no minimum investment size. Um, yeah, well, I'm sure we have minimum fees because of the time and the, the help that we provide our clients, but um, we have 800 clients, a hundred of them are over 100 million in net worth. Uh, probably half of those are over a billion. And then we have uh, 700 clients that are, call it, uh, anywhere from you know, 500,000 to 10 million in assets uh, or, or below taxable estate levels. So we have a pretty broad cross-section of clients. Um, and we think that having that diversity helps all of our clients. Um, the, the, common, the thing they have in common is that they, they are looking for more planning than investment advice. If they're looking for stock pickers, we're not their, we're not their firm. Um, but if they're looking for good investment advice, they're looking for planning. And honestly, that's where we came up with the name advice period was we just wanted to offer our clients advice, period. Uh, and that's what we found was most helpful and most valued by our families. And that was the business we wanted to be in. So I think it's really interesting looking at kind of that just range of clients that you have because a $500,000 client is a lot different than a $500 million client. So do you have the same business model set up for all of those or kind of how do you, how do you operate that? And I know you have a bunch of offices, so maybe perhaps it's different offices focus on different things. The group, and it's largely my partner, Steve Lockshin, who focuses on those $100 million plus families. Uh, we have a team uh, based in Los Angeles that we call the lab. And the lab's uh, sole focus is on those uh, centimillionaires, those $100 million uh, plus type of families and all of the issues from you know, business management where we handle the bill pay and financial statements for these families to uh, coordinating the estate planning to obviously managing their investments and everything else that comes up in the you know, often very complex lives of those types of families. So that's their deep expertise. Um, and we called them the lab because to your point earlier about innovating, you have to innovate for these families um, the tax laws are always changing. Technology that's available that helps these families is always adapting. And so the lab is constantly experimenting, researching, looking at new things uh, before rolling them out to those families. And then to your point, some of those strategies certainly wouldn't make sense for a family with a million dollars, but some of the technology might. So it, when we first started using Betterment, for example, we were using it on some with some of our largest families, um, and then as we got more familiar with it, and we saw that the benefits would be great for all families, families of all sizes. It's something that's now available. Not all of our clients use it, but it's something that's available to all of our clients, um, and that's true of, of lots of the different uh, pieces of our tech stack. Uh, we'll try it with in the lab, and then if it makes sense, we can roll it out to, like you said, our fourteen offices across the country. That's really interesting uh, of starting with a higher net worth and having it filter down. Not, I mean, especially the technology side of it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because sometimes, again, we, we have these misconceptions of who would be interested in using technology. And so I think the, the general stereotype is, well, if you're going to try something that's more technology enabled, it's going to make sense for lower net worth clients and or younger clients. 
those were our own biases when we started more heavily using um, you know, Betterment and Advisor and, and Quovo and some of the pieces of our technology. Um, even going mobile and, and having uh, these things available on your phone, we thought, oh, this is going to skew in a certain direction. And we couldn't have been more wrong. Um, and if you look at the demographic studies of the percentage of um, those over 60 that have iPhones, and you start to realize that, again, these are our own filters. And what are our blind spots? What opportunities are advisors missing because they're projecting their own values or their own uh, uh, blind spots onto others? And, and I think it's pretty significant. And as I mentioned, I, I think that that really impacts an advisor's ability to grow uh, both in how they're helping their current clients as well as growing their practices and including uh, additional families. And ultimately, that impacts their enterprise value or lack thereof. Uh, we, we talk a lot about change and how fast things are changing. And it's it's we have to always be challenging those assumptions. Very true. Very true. Because if, if at least in our opinion, in our experience, if you're not challenging them, you know, if we're not challenging them together, someone else is going to. And that's how you're going to lose your business. Because if you're not innovating, somebody else will. And I think having that, uh, we, we call it a, you know, a healthy paranoia of are we doing everything we can? Are we challenging assumptions? Are we trying new things? Um, you know, one of our, our newest advisors to join us um, has a great business. He, he was part of a regional RIA. And uh, the latest technology that was rolled out at his firm in the 12 months prior to him joining advice period uh, was Excel. They, they had finally decided to move off of Lotus Notes and you know, make the, take the plunge into uh, Microsoft Excel. And it's just indicative of the outdated technology and a lot of advisors and advisory firms focusing on things that don't matter. I'm sure those, that firm spent an awful lot of time thinking about investment management and how they could beat the market. I'm sure making some good decisions, but probably a lot of bad decisions and ultimately neglecting the business and advisors and their clients need, need better than that, deserve better than that. Man, it just makes my skin crawl. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, it's, I, I didn't know Lotus Notes was still out there, but apparently it is. Looking across the industry and across the profession, what are the other assumptions that, that you see being challenged right now? Like, Where do you expect to see our industry grow and develop in the next you know, 10 years? I think thematically... Uh, and, and 10 years is a great time frame to think about it because it's so hard to imagine a world 10 years from now because of the rapid pace of change that we've experienced in the past 10 years. Um, and just think about all the things that have happened in the past decade and try to push that forward at even a steeper trajectory. So we, we believe that thematically, uh, technology, automation, you, you may think of that as uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning uh, is going to do things that uh, the vast majority of advisors today just can't possibly fathom. I, I, we hear from advisors all the time that say, yeah, technology is great, but it can never do what I do. I'm an advisor. And I try to caution advisors from putting up those barriers. Don't underestimate change. Don't underestimate technology. Because uh, I think every time we've done that, we've been wrong. Maybe it happens a little bit later than we think. Maybe it's a little bit sooner. But change is not polite. 
change is not just going to give you a heads up and says, hey, listen, Hannah, you know, in about a year, if you don't make this change to your business, I'm going to disrupt you and it's going to be a big problem for you. Change change kind of smacks you in the face sometimes. And I think a lot of advisors are are in the uh, are gonna are in the market for a rude awakening when that when that happens. Uh, when they start to think technology can't automate financial planning, technology can't automate uh, estate planning, technology can't do what I do, I think they're going to lose that bet. You know, it's, it's so interesting, uh, especially, you know, we, you know, talking a lot to new planners, you know, who are just starting their career into financial planning. How do new planners kind of position themselves in this changing world? Well, I think in some respects, new, new advisors are the best suited to drive the change forward. And that's why I think they have this amazing opportunity and why there's probably never been a better time to be a financial planner than right now. So many firms, ourselves included, we, you can become uh, uh, beholden to the way you've always done things. You become a victim of your own success. And that's why for us, it was such a, such a blessing to start from scratch five years ago where we had no systems, we had no technology or the way things had always been done. We also had no clients. So we had to, <laughs> we had to build and find, and find them. Um, but that was, that, was a, that was a great benefit to us. Uh, we didn't have to, you know, change a CRM system that we had used for 20 years. We didn't have to adopt a policy that, or change a policy that had been in place for a decade. So, I, I think advisors that are starting out, it's a blessing and a curse. Obviously, the curse is you don't have the resources. You're focused on building your practice, but we're we're, we're really inspired and encouraged when we talk to advisors all over the country who have bought into this notion that clients deserve better, that there's a way to focus on what really matters, that there are tools and opportunities that exist today that didn't exist previously. And I think if a, if a new advisor today goes in with an open and curious mindset, they're going to find opportunities and ways to help their clients and build their practice that is going to just supercharge their business and allow them to to build great practices. And then their challenge will be, can they turn that into a real business, something that has enterprise value uh, more than just a, you know, a solo practice? And let's talk about that. When you say turn it into a business that has enterprise value, what, what specifically do you mean? We're fortunate enough to talk with you know, every year hundreds, thousands of advisors across the country. And, and we typically talk to, when it comes to enterprise value, we typically talk to, there are two types of folks we talk to. There are those that have never tried to sell their practice and sell their business. And those folks typically have a um, inflated sense of what their business is worth. You know, they know someone who sold their business for X times revenue or Y times earnings, and they think their business is worth that too. Um, then we talk to other folks who have actually tried to sell their business, and, and they're typically a little bit more a little bit more reasonable. So it can be a hard thing for advisors to get a grasp of what is my business worth, if anything, and then how do I increase it? And and what we've seen is the, a couple missed opportunities. The, the biggest missed opportunity is that a lot of advisors don't have real businesses. They have lifestyle companies. You know, that they've set up a lifestyle business to work with their clients, do what they're passionate about, um, but they are the key person. Um, you know, the business wouldn't exist if not for them. They've not built out the infrastructure to handle operations. Um, 
Now, there's no scale that's associated with it. Uh, and as a result, their business plateaus. You know, the, the, the business grows to the size that one financial advisor can handle. Uh, and then that's it. Um, and, and who's going to buy that business? You know, I, I wouldn't pay very much for that. I mean, we're not in the market of bi- buying businesses, but um, you know, that, that's not an enterprise. That's a solo practice. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, again, I know tons of great advisors where that's their business and they love it and their clients are, are, are greatly helped by them. But when it comes time to sell the business, it's just not going to be worth very much. And so I think the opportunity that they have is to build a real business, build something that is larger than one person, uh, either build it yourself or join another company, join a company where they have that infrastructure. Um, you know, advisors who have their own practices, when they join, you know, an advice period or they join another business, their practice automatically becomes worth two to three times what it is on their own because they have the infrastructure. And at least in our case, you know, our our advisors keep owning 100% of their business. So they get to keep all of that upside. Um, So I think that's the opportunity for advisors is, is build, build a real company, a real enterprise. It's not easy. Um, but I think that's the opportunity. I remember when I first started working for a woman um, and realizing that it is a business, but it wasn't that enterprise value that you're talking about. For the people who are working at firms right now, what are signs or indicators that they're not working inside, you know, like, how do I say a business business, um, but more of that lifestyle practice? I, I think, and this is hard for a lot of advisors to hear, uh, Just it's just my opinion, people can disagree with it. I, I firmly believe that many, many great advisors are horrible business people. Yep. <laughs> that, that's just not their passion. Their passion is helping people. I think some of the best advisors get into this business because they truly like helping people and that they're able to live that passion by being a financial advisor. And I think that's a great calling. Um, but the fact of the matter is they're not great business people. They're not thinking about the culture of their business. They're not thinking about the operational infrastructure. They're not thinking about how do I scale this business? Uh, you see it in everything from what a company is called. You know, how many wealth management firms are named after the last name of the founder or the last names of the founder? Um, again, I know plenty of good firms that, that are named that way, but that, that firm is about that person. It's not an enterprise, oftentimes. Um, is there someone that runs the business who isn't a financial advisor? You know, is there that chief operating officer or that president of the firm who certainly knows enough about financial advisory to be dangerous, but whose primary focus isn't taking care of clients? It's taking care of the business and the teammates and the employees that work there. Um, those would be, I think, some high-level indicators as to whether or not you're working for a lifestyle business or, or a true company that would uh, grow beyond just the founder. And I think that's the ultimate test. If that founder got hit by that bus that's out there circling the streets looking for all of us, if that founder went away, is there still a business? And if the answer is yes, then then you've made it. You've crossed that threshold into an enterprise um, look, every business has key people. Uh, I don't want anything to happen to me or any, or any of my partners. Um, but I think if it did, the business would carry on. And I think that's, that's a good hurdle to, to get over for uh, growing businesses. 
And so how do you identify yourself? I mean, do you view yourself as like that business owner or the financial planner? Or? I'm still trying to find out what I'm good at. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping I'll get there eventually. Uh, I, I love helping my fairly limited client base, largely my friends, my, my you know, folks I've met through business. Um, but I'm much more passionate about helping my team be successful. Um, you know, I, I, I think I got into this business because I enjoyed helping people and, and I do enjoy helping my clients. Um, but I, I'm, I get much more enthusiastic seeing um, my teammates, my partners, uh, our interns uh, grow in and accomplish all the things that they want to in their careers. You know, that, that gives me an awful lot of fulfillment. And that, that's what gets me really fired up. And, and if I can help in some small way, you know, put our team and our partners together in a position where they can be successful and impact more people's lives, that, that makes me really happy. So speaking of helping people, you just came out with a book called It's That Simple, How to Build a Professional Service Firm of the Future. What motivated you to write this book? Uh, fair, fair question. Um, I, I think it was really two things. Uh, personally, I, I was curious uh, about the challenge. You know, w- would I be able to stick with a process that was gonna, going to take you know, a year or more? Um, w- would I be able to come up with enough things that at least I thought were interesting enough to share with other people. But I, I just enjoyed the challenge of it to see if I could, if I could do it. Um, and then, uh, I guess professionally, but also overlaps with personal. Yeah, like I said, I, I like to help folks. And if there's some things that we're doing at advice period that can help other financial advisors or other professional service providers, lawyers, doctors, accountants, attorneys, um, Again, that would that would make me really happy. I'm really enthusiastic about what we're doing at Advice Period, not because we have it all figured out by any means. We're still learning every day, uh, but I'm really excited about it. And uh, again, I, I love the idea of, of being able to help others. And uh, you know, if there's some good nuggets in the book, which I, which I certainly think there there are, uh, you know, that helps someone, it helps a professional service provider, you know, take better care of their clients and their customers. Then that would that would make me really happy. And so, you know, looking at kind of that book and kind of what's in it, um, and for anybody listening, you can go go to Amazon and find it, or you can go to the show notes in there, and the link is in the show notes for the book as well. Um, but you talk about the importance of attracting great clients and how to do it. Can you talk a little bit more about, I mean, and I often hear people talk about you need to attract the right clients. Um, and so I guess, how do you know who the right clients are and how do you attract them? In my personal experience, our, our experience with advice period, um, it's one of the most difficult things to stay disciplined enough to say no to an existing client or to say no to a prospective client if they're not the right fit for you. It's so difficult, especially as I know a lot of your audience is, you know, they're building a business. Every new dollar of revenue will be put to good use. Um, but. But to your point, um, you want the right clients, not the right now clients. And as difficult as that can be over the intermediate term, over the long term, uh, that's really going to separate a great business from an okay business. And so if your question is, how, how do you identify what makes a good client or a great client? A great client is someone that you can help and is someone that values your services. I mean, on Honestly, it's not more complicated than that. Someone that you can help means that they fit what services you offer. Um, you know, for, for us, that's going to be someone that values planning, someone that is interested and open to advice and to being coached. Um, 
you know, it's not going to be someone that wants us to pick the hottest stock or to trade crypto. Uh, that's not what we do. Uh, and so someone who's interested in us doing that for them, no matter what they're going to pay us, isn't going to be a great client because that's just not what we do. And then the other side of that equation is someone that values what we do. So if someone's only willing to pay us a dollar for our services, we don't think that's fair. And so we value one of the best pieces of advice I got from um, one of my many mentors I've had, uh, Andy Putterman. So listen, when you present your bill to your client, do it with a lot of pride. Uh, provide that bill promptly, provide it accurately, and expect the client to pay it. Be proud of what you're doing. Uh, and if you're not, if you don't value your services, your clients certainly aren't. And so if your clients don't value your service, if they don't appreciate you, uh, either because they treat you or your team poorly, that's a situation you need to fix or it's going to sink your business very, very quickly. So find clients that you can help and that value and appreciate what you're doing for them. You know, there's a lot of buzz around this idea of niche marketing. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on that? Our approach, uh, and something I believe in personally, is that the more clear you are on who you want to work with, the easier it's going to be for those clients to find you. And so when you think of marketing or PR, uh, tell the world what you believe in and like-minded clients, like-minded advisors will find you. Uh, so if you believe in the power of passive investing, write a lot on passive investing, blog on it, uh, speak on it, uh, put that out there in the world, and people who share your beliefs will find you. It's much easier to sign up a client who is already looking for what you provide than trying to convince a client or a prospective client who isn't looking for what you want, have that what you have is what they really want. I'd rather talk to folks that are already looking for a planning first technology enabled adv advisor than try to convince someone who's at a big wirehouse that what their broker is doing for them is costing them money and is of no value. I'd like to be able to do that. It's just really, really difficult. So if you have that niche, if you have that niche, if you have a target that you want to go after, yeah, define it, put that out there in the world, be known for something. And it's going to make it a lot easier for you to find clients that are interested in what you're doing. Looking at your book and, and kind of what you're talking about there, you, you talk about the critical impact of a shared mission. Yep. Can you talk about that more? Because I feel like it does overlap with what you're, what you're talking about with, with clients and attracting the right clients. No question. I mean, I, what we, we distinguish when we're looking to attract um, teammates. But I think to your point, it definitely applies to clients as well. We want to attract missionaries, not mercenaries. So a missionary to us is someone who believes in our mission, who believes in our vision for the future, who is working with us for something more than a paycheck. Uh, but they're passionate about what we're doing, about the lives that we're impacting, the business that we're building, and, and our uh company mission of reinventing wealth management. I think if you, if you asked most anyone at, on the advice period team from California to Atlanta to Rhode Island to anywhere, Texas in between, uh, you, you, they'd be able to tell you that our mission is reinventing wealth management um, versus a, a mercenary. A mercenary is working because you're paying them the most. You know, they, they're interested in the signing bonus. They're interested in the title. They're interested in 
what's in it for them. Uh, and listen, we're, we're, we're all a for-profit business. We need to pay our folks fairly. But ultimately, we think our clients will be best served if we have a team full of missionaries who aren't looking at the clock as to when they should get out of the office, but they're focused on getting the job done. And they don't stop until it's done. Um, and so we attract those missionaries, or we try to attract those missionaries, again, by telling the world what we believe in, uh, by writing a lot, by being very open and transparent with everything that we're doing in the business. We think that attracts and retains a team of, of missionaries, and we think ultimately that's going to benefit our clients and, and our business. Hearing you say this, and I'm just connecting with all of these younger planners and new planners that I talk with who are so passionate about financial planning. And it's just so cool to be like, you know, these people who are so passionate, there are passionate firms that you want to get paired with. And it's about finding that right fit, um, especially for new planners. Couldn't agree more. I mean, look, life's too short to not love what you're doing and who you're doing it with. And again, I think especially in, in our industry, which I, right now is called wealth management. But I think over those next 10 years that we were talking about earlier, I think over the next 10 years, it's going, our services will expand to be not just investments and planning, but it will expand to include legal services, tax services, um, all aspects of a client's financial lives where one advisor or one advisory firm will be able to answer and address all of those clients' needs. Yeah, th those people are passionate about helping their clients and making their lives more simple. And there are, it's been a lot of fun over the past couple of years to talk with these thousands of advisors, just like you do, across the country who have that same passion and that desire to do things even better than they're currently being done. And I think that's what's going to make it a lot of fun. For new planners who are entering the profession, the financial planning profession right now, what is your advice to them? Again, I think now is a great time to be entering the business. I think now is a great time to be uh, growing a business. Um, I, I think uh, embrace, embrace the change, be open and curious, be looking to do things differently. And, and, and like you're saying about uh, finding other advisors out there who believe what you believe, uh, you don't need to go it alone. I think you can find uh, the right combination where you have all the benefits and financial and f other flexibility of owning your own business, but do it inside of a construct where you can learn from other folks. Again, I think there's a great community of advisors out there. Uh, find it. You know, find those advisors who you can learn from, who you can challenge, and who can challenge you. Uh, and again, they're, they're out there and through communities like yours and the FPA, um, you know, advice period, we're trying to do it in our own, our own way as well. Um, I, I think you can find other like-minded advisors out there and you can do a lot more together than I think we could do apart. And I think that's the opportunity for the broader you know, independent advisor community and financial planning community is, you know, we're a very fragmented market right now. The more we come together and work together, uh, the more we'll be able to change the industry for the better. And ultimately that benefits clients. It's going to benefit us and we can really change. I think we can change the entire country's financial trajectory if the financial planning community comes together, works together and focuses on what's best for clients. 
If you like this episode, you can find more at fpaactivate.org and be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening.